Welcome back to In Search Of, where we go in search of voices and perspectives that expand and enrich a life of faith. I'm Amy Frickholm, Senior Editor at the Christian Century, and your guide for this season, A Journey in Search of Truth. For the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring truth in historical contexts. We've looked at biblical texts, we've looked at the ways that we tell stories in American history, and it's been fairly clear that when we tell the truth about the past, it's never the full truth that we can tell. We can tell better stories, we can lean in and listen carefully to our sources, but the whole truth and nothing but the truth is going to elude us. This week, however, we're adding an element to our search for truth. We're adding justice. And when we add justice to the pursuit of truth, I think it really matters that we both find the truth and tell the truth because we're talking about the more than 5 million incarcerated people in the United States, the highest population of incarcerated people in the world. And when we tell their stories, we're not only in search of truth, but we're also in search of justice, a justice that is elusive in the context of the American incarceration system. My guest today is Willie Dwayne Francois III. He's the senior pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in Pleasantville, New Jersey. And he directs the Master of Professional Studies program at New York Theological Seminary, which offers this master's degree program in a U.S. prison setting. The program is active in two New York state prisons, Sing Sing Men's Prison, and as of last year, Bedford Hills Women's Prison. Welcome to In Search of Willie. I'm so glad to have you here today. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Amy. I would love to hear a little bit about how you got interested in the intersection of theological education and our incarceration system. Sure. Um, well, one is I have had a profound love and profound discontentment uh, with the way that uh, American faith communities, uh, primarily uh, American forms of Christianity, uh, have in, in so many ways been silent about the uh, carceral tribulation uh, that exists in America. Uh, we are, as, as a nation, we are only 5% of the world's population, but we house 25% of the world's incarcerated population. There's no other industrialized nation that has the kind of record of punitivity, the kind of record of hyper-incarceration uh, the way the United States does. And I have, thanks to folk like Michelle Alexander uh, and, and the Proctor Conference, have been able to frame and see incarceration as a moral issue, uh, as a human civil rights issue. And as I continue to develop my own theological imagination and, and commit to my own pastoral and spiritual formation, I've begun to see incarceration as a theological crisis as well. So I, I, I'm drawn into this work because I have more than a few cousins, uh, male cousins particularly, who have been incarcerated. And our families and our churches were really silent about what was happening to them. We used code language like they were in the Bahamas or they were in college when the reality was these are black men who are under state control for nonviolent drug offenses. And so it is that silence of the church and the shame that families, particularly my family, carried around incarceration that drove me into thinking about this work 
uh, as, as, as a part of my own vocation, uh, disrupting uh, incarceration as a part of how I understand myself to be a disciple of, of Jesus. So it's experiential uh, family dynamics that brought me into this work. It's my own vocational sense of where people who follow Jesus should be uh, that brings me uh, to this work. And then this, this amazing opportunity to be the director of the Master of Professional Studies program at NYTS, which is the oldest pro, uh, master's degree program offered in an American prison by a theological institution. Uh, you know, being able to live at the intersection of doing abolition work, of doing theological education, uh, and also practicing pastoral care with, with incarcerated men and now women uh, that, that has really animated my, my thinking around the, the possibilities of how theological education functions in the work of prison abolition. Absolutely fascinated by what you're saying about the expansion of your theological imagination and incarceration as a theological problem that, that requires um, something different from us. And I wonder, just to start with, if you could talk a little bit about your program and how incarcerated people get involved in the program, what kind of classes they take, just kind of what does it look like? Yeah, we, we think about our program, or at least uh, in, the last, in the last two years that I've been the director of the program, uh, and I've been able to revise the curriculum to actually represent the type of work that our graduates go on to do. So thinking about our program centered around justice leadership, theological uh, methods and, and reflection and carcerality. So, so those are the, the, the prongs on, on which our curriculum stands. And, you know, and, and I say that because our students come into the program with no prior formal theological education. Uh, the majority of them have earned degrees while incarcerated. And so many of those are interdisciplinary liberal arts degrees. Uh, you know, some come in with degrees in, in sociology, with emphasis in psychology. Uh, those are the two major areas that I've seen our students come into the, into the work. Again, that's only been, been two years of the history of, of the program. So really they come in, they come in really blind to, or, or really cold to, to what theological education is going to be. And that, that first semester is really a time of deconstruction and, and, and critical interpretation because some do enter into the, the pedagogical process uh, thinking that it's a, it's a program that is intended to strengthen faith, a program that's intended to, to give them a greater conversance around what it means to be a disciple. And I love that, that you know, a critical, liberative theological education does contribute to that, that formation of the student. Uh, but really, we, we're, we're interested in what it means to cultivate leaders who are building power uh, inside prison through uh, theological and religious means. So there isn't a lot of preparation uh, that we do uh, uh, pre-coursework pre for our students, uh, but they do come in with stellar academic backgrounds in whatever uh, field they undertook uh, in their undergraduate education. And I think that's important to name uh, because you know every year we can get 20 applications uh, from incarcerated men and we only accept somewhere between eight to 10. So it is a competitive process, uh, you know, 
considering uh, the, the small pool of incarcerated men who have bachelor's education. Uh, so the preparation that they come in with is, is a strong baccalaureate background. I wanted to ask just one more question about your students. What are they searching for when they come into your program? What are they looking for? What kind of truth are they searching for? What kind of experience are they hoping for? What's their search? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. I think that they are in search of the dignity that is being robbed of them from a daily basis. Uh, I've heard our students talk about our program as a mountaintop. Uh, I've heard them talk about it as an oasis in the wilderness. I heard them, I've heard them image our program uh, as, as a safety raft in the middle of a torturous sea. Uh, that leads me to believe that they're coming to this work not just for an education, and they do appreciate the education, and they do such a stellar job of it, of, of, of engaging the course material. Um, but they're in search of ways of reclaiming their power and as reasserting their human dignity uh, that is being snatched and embezzled from them on a daily basis. And so the greatest truth I think they're after is that truth of what does it mean for me to accept my humanity and to embrace the fact that no one deserves what we're experiencing? If we give that to them, uh, I think that that's up to them. But 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 the idea of us probing questions around God and truth and justice and and what it means to be human, I have to believe that helps in that process. How do you then decide what to teach, who to teach? and how to teach? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a great question. Uh, so when I redeveloped the curriculum, I guess about a year ago, I wanted the, the, the Master of Professional Studies program, which is, which is the, the program, the master's that we offer. Uh, it, it's sort of ambiguous around, well, what, what's, the, what's the content area of the MPS? What's the, what's the skill set you develop? What, what methodologies? do you explore? And those questions were questions that our, our graduates had to address when they're at home uh, seeking employment. Uh, people want to know, well, what does an MPS prepare you to do? Uh, and, and the majority of our students do not go into a formalized ministry setting uh, once, they, once they graduate, although while they're incarcerated, uh, they do serve as chaplain's assistants. They, they also serve uh, in, in sort of peer spiritual guidance work uh, with, their, with other incarcerated uh, men. Uh, but, but, the, but by and large, they don't go into formal parish congregational settings. Uh, and, and so as I was looking at the curriculum, I wanted it to be a, an educational process that spoke to the justice trajectory or the vocational trajectories in justice work that our students go on, on, on to do. Uh, so obviously we're a seminary, so theological education is what we do, but how at every turn are we able to connect this theological education to something related to organizational leadership, 
something related to uh, uh, theological interpretations and critique of the time, uh, something related to what does it mean to dismantle incarceration, uh, uh, the hyper-incarceration of America in some ways. So developing the curriculum was, was really about that. How do we, if we wanna be honest about that our students are going on to do social work, our students are going on to do uh, work in the city agencies uh, that are connected to incarceration or returning citizenship. Uh, our students are going to, to do the work uh, where they are creating nonprofits that are living at the intersection of, of faith and, and anti-incarceration. And so developing that curriculum uh, that, that spoke to those future uh, occupational trends uh, was, was really important. And to, and to have faculty persons who in some ways are connected to organizational building and development, who are connected to leadership and anti-incarceration work was, was also profoundly important for us. And one of the things that I love about our, our teaching faculty at Sing Sing is that two of our faculty members are alums of the program, which means these are two men who were formerly incarcerated, who are now at home doing a range of work uh, at the intersection of faith and incarceration. One, it leads the uh, Ending Mass Incarceration Coalition of the greater New York area. Uh, the other also uh, does, does work around fundraising and, and community mobilization uh, connected to, to the formerly incarcerated. I'm, I'm kind of a nerd, but I would love to hear uh, something like what what reading, what's a reading or a, a theologian that really resonates? And then if you have an example of one that failed in your opinion, or just kind of bombed, or you tried and it just didn't work, I'd love to hear. You know, liberation theologies, uh, in my two years, liberation theologies have been a, a significant uh, point of enthusiasm for for our students and you know and this may be a bias of of, of the syllabi but James Cone uh, you know who is the progenitor of Black Liberation Theology uh, and who also trained uh, and received critique from his former students who gave life to womanist theology Th those types of theologies uh, have been really central for unlocking our students' carceral hermeneutics, right? So they've made, reading Cone, they have made some very creative and compelling uh, appropriations of his work to their carceral context. Uh, so, so, so James Cone is a favorite uh, from our curriculum. One that has failed, and it surprised me, uh, was actually Foucault. Uh, we, uh, in one of my, my courses, I uh, assigned, uh, um, discipline and punish uh, to to the students, which which gives this 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 historical reading of the development of of the modern prison as a as a tool of social control and a tool of proliferating uh, what what Foucault calls delinquency, uh, and and it didn't go over well. Maybe it was the the denseness of Foucault in the short amount of time that we had to to unpack uh, his text, or maybe you know their their lived experience didn't quite track with the way he's talking about a prison formation or a development of prisons in Europe, which we know is distinct 
uh, from how Americans uh, develop prisons as as extensions and and reincarnations of of plantations. And so so Foucault was a surprising moment that didn't land as well as I thought it would. <laughs> That's fascinating. What about you? How have you changed as you've been doing this work? What's what's new for you or how do you how do you stay on your own cutting edge? Yes. So most of my my work in in areas of of abolition has been as an activist and as as a pastor. And so doing this work as as a as a pedagogue, as as an academic uh, has has challenged me uh, to consider uh, just how detached some of my activism has been. Uh, from incarcerated communities. I've done work with formerly incarcerated uh, folk, brothers and sisters. Uh, I've done work with the families of incarcerated brothers and sisters, but I realized that there was a serious gap in the work that I was able to to do alongside uh, men and women who are currently under uh, correctional control, under state control, who are experiencing state-sponsored violence. So being in a carceral context as, as as a thought partner with, as an instructor of, and as a, a, a fellow disciple with incarcerated men these last two years and now women has really expanded my pastoral imagination. What does it mean to show up uh, as a pastor in the classroom? What does it mean to show up as a pastor uh, as, as a policy advocate is a direct result of, of my weekly uh, engagement with men who are living under intense and unspeakable forms of humiliation and violence on a daily basis. To come to class after being assaulted by a correction officer and you're now forced to read uh, Bishop Tutu's Book of Forgiving, uh, it, that, that, that adds a very different quality and dynamic to the learning context. And I've been converted by that. Uh, it, it has exposed to me some of those gaps in my consciousness to what actually goes on behind bars, which influences the kinds of demands that I have to put on the state to make sure that if we're going to have prisons, and I'm not sure that we should, but if we're going to have prisons, uh, that they need to be humane context and seeing and hearing from uh, and holding those stories of of dehumanization, of humiliation uh, and and of violence uh, has has been really, really uh, converting for me. That brings up for me a question about, you mentioned earlier that your students bring often a sense that their education is going to participate in faith development for them, that somehow this this work that they're going to engage in with you is going to develop their faith in some ways. And I wonder if you could talk about how you address that intersection of faith development and um, ministry development and academic development all, all at once. Yeah, so there may be some of our faculty members who are much better at this uh, than than, <laughs> than I am, uh, but my bias is is to keep the conversation on a critical interpretation on on a diverse methodology of of theological inquiry, uh, and so there are those moments when they do bring more confessional readings to, to of, of, of scripture, more confessional readings of Christianity to the classroom that occasions opportunities for us to interrogate 
where those ideas came from. So the most that I get to do in terms of faith formation is to raise the types of questions and set the table for them to interrogate the origins of these theological convictions that they bring to, to the table. And so uh, I am attempting to do what Duke and Stone does, and that is to move them from an embedded sense of theology to a deliberative uh, sense of theology, that they are now thinking about their own theological convictions, they're thinking about their own faith formation from the, from the posture of, of, of question, right? Uh, that they no longer hold any idea as so sacred that it cannot be questioned. So I think the, the, the role that our program does, or at least what I'm attempting to do, is to, to yes, give them this, this, this critical emancipatory education, uh, this crash introduction to, uh, to the various dimensions of theological education, but I'm also hoping that they leave with tools for raising questions and interrogating and probing uh, the origins of their of their theological convictions in ways that I hope will allow them to read their own context as incarcerated persons that they're able to read uh, their own stories on what got them to prison as both structural and individual uh, and for them to read what it, where the future uh, outside of prison uh, can, can be like. It definitely sounds like you give your students a lot of space to bring their theological ideas and then and then mess around with them in the classroom. But I wonder if you could name what you think one of the most damaging or distressing theological ideas that students bring to the classroom um, is, if if there is one that you think, wow, I just wish we didn't, I wish as a culture we just wouldn't wouldn't develop people theologically in this particular way. Is there is there a theological idea or presupposition that you you think is particularly damaging for your students? Yeah, I think for our male students, uh, the embedded patriarchy of Christ of American Christianities is something that is trafficked into the classroom from their from their faith commitments. Uh, so and, and I think this is true for for many seminarians, uh, not just incarcerated seminarians, but the amount of, of time that it takes to to dismantle patriarchal language around God, referring to God, around imaging God, uh, around talking about uh, what it means to be human. That sense of, of patriarchy and misogyny war uh, does get in, in the way of, of theological formation uh, sometimes, or it becomes an opportunity uh, for us to drill in and to drill down and, and, and deconstruct. Uh, you know, I think so many Christian communities uh, need to do more interrogation of this, uh, but these, these ideas around sacrificial atonement, uh, the, the idea of, of valorizing and venerating suffering, uh, comes from the way we think about atonement theory. Uh, you know, Jesus, one person dies for all of us. One person has to suffer so that the rest of us can be free uh, is sometimes read into their own context, that, that they believe that there is something salvific about their suffering. Uh, something sal salvific may not be the word. That The, the assumption that, that they deserve the kind of dehumanizing treatment uh, that they're receiving in prison, and that this dehumanizing treatment gets them closer 
uh, to, to Jesus, I think is, is the kind of doctrine uh, that normalizes abuses. It's the kind of doctrine that, that shields and protects what prisons are doing behind those bars and behind those walls that are not seen to the American public, but are person breaking, that, that are uh, uh, in, in a lot of ways, uh, de- not just dehumanizing, uh, but in a lot of ways, they, they shape uh, what it means uh, to be disempowered and to accept that disempowerment as, as normal. And so to interrogate doctrines like sacrificial atonement, I think is 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 an important point of departure uh, for 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 faculty person and for for student considering uh, the carceral context that is that is highly punitive, uh, that is, uh, you know, torturous in some dimensions uh, and is inherently violent. Uh, and to have a theological reading of that, uh, that that normal that to say, well, Jesus suffered innocently, which means we can suffer, I think does a disservice to their spirits. It does a disservice to the faith tradition of Jesus, but I also think it does a disservice to our democracy that is too dependent on the violence of, of prisons. Wow, that's that's amazing. Thank you for that answer. I wonder too, it raises for a question for me of, of women versus men in the theological classroom. You, um, you've just started this program with women and I wonder how teaching, how you're finding teaching women different from teaching men or the same, like what, what do you, what do you see in those classrooms? Yes. So our, our sisters are bringing different questions around their own incarceration, around motherhood, uh, around what it means to be partnered into the classroom that that I haven't seen show up with our brothers. Uh, you know, some of our, our, our men are fathers, uh, but that is not centered as much in, mm-hmm. in our, in our uh, inquiry, in our, in, our, in our theological curiosities, as I've heard uh, in, in, our, in our women's uh, facility. So there, there's that dimension, that they're, they're experiential questions and, and locations that are brought into the classroom as a result of, of gender that we just can't I- I- ignore. <clears throat> Another dimension for us is that our teaching staff at Bedford Hills, which is where our new uh, women's uh, program is, is 100% uh, led by, by people who identify as, as women, and 85% of those are non-white women. And so I thought it was, and that was an intentional move to make sure that uh, feminism and womanism uh, was centered, not just in in the books assigned, but centered in the pedagogy was really important. And I thought that uh, to have access to the woman's professorial voice and how the feminist and the womanist traditions show up uh, in uh, women's lives, I thought was was an important an, an important feature to have uh, at least in this first year of 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 the program's existence. I wonder if we could just switch outside the classroom for a minute and talk about how the program is received. What kind of obstacles do you run into? What kind of misunderstandings and miscommunications are a part of your a part of your daily life as director. Yeah. So, like I said, we so many of our our brothers have come home 
uh, over over the years. Uh, and although they come home with a master's degree, they come home uh, more credentialed uh, and more degreed than the majority of the American <laughs> population. But in spite of them coming home with a graduate education, uh, in spite of them coming home with stellar records of, of work and skill development uh, during their uh, tenure of incarceration, they come home and face what so many other formerly incarcerated women and men face. Uh, limited access to employment, uh, discrimination in employment, but also discrimination in, in housing. Uh, so many of them face housing insecurity, food insecurity. Uh, many of them still have difficulty getting driver's license, uh, a, a driver's license when, when, when they come home. And so although our, our graduates do represent uh, a, a lettered, highly credentialed, degreed uh, character of, of, of the American society, uh, they still carry the imposed stigma of incarceration. And we know that our society, uh, it, it continues to penalize those who've been incarcerated. After you've served your time, uh, you now live in invisible bars uh, that box you out of additional educational experiences, that box you out of access to public benefits, uh, that box you out of, of housing and, and food security. Uh, and, and that doesn't go away with the master's degree. But our graduates have done extraordinarily well in, in, in light of that type of op opposition and friction that they experience from a public uh, that does not practice the kind of forgiveness that we want extended to, to us, right? Uh, so th that, that is how I have understood our, what happens when our, our brothers come home. But, you know, they, they've created very successful multi-million dollar nonprofits uh, like Julio Medina and the Exodus Transitional Communities. Uh, they, they run organizations like Ending Mass Incarceration uh, with, with John Duxworth. They, 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 they work for the Children's Defense Fund. Uh, they, they work in, in city government. And that is a result of their resilience, not because of America's uh, open arms of welcome mm -hmm. to them. I would like to also say, in terms of internal reception, internal to DOCS, uh, uh, the Department of uh, Correction and Community Supervision, DOCS, is we have received, and, and this is across the 40 years, just full-throated support from the administration. That does not mean that they have always treated our graduates and our students with the kind of humane respect that they deserve, but they have supported and augmented this program in unexpected ways. I could speak of them, uh, but unexpected ways, considering how I understand the, the, the nature of, of, of carcerality in, in this country. So it is a surprise uh, that the administration, uh, from the commissioner to the, to the superintendent of, of the prisons, they really pour a lot of, of, of energy into making sure that our program runs smoothly from year to year to ensure that our students are transferred from other facilities across the state uh, and to ensure that our faculty persons are able to get in and out uh, with some levels of ease. But that is not always the case with the rank and file correction officer. Uh, there have been times that 
I have been asked questions around like, why do you do this? Uh, do you feel safe? Uh, you think this is a good use of your time? Uh, I've heard correction officers say to me, uh, you know, if 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 committing a crime is what will get you a free education, I don't know why I'm spending all this money to send my children to school uh, and they haven't done any crime. Uh, so there is some level of 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 opposition and maybe even resentment uh, that I have found from correction officers. But I'm also very clear that correction officers are doing time to uh, to be in a cell. Uh, to be in a box, although they get to go home, but to be in the box, uh, to ward over uh, the lives of people that they believe are undeserving uh, is not the kind of life that I think anyone would, would envy. So I do understand that some of the, the, the resistance that, I, that we receive from corrections officers is also connected to the fact that they are doing time and they too are not free. Uh, they, they are living under the same kind of suspicion from the state uh, that, that incarcerated women and men are living under. And that kind of liminal space of being free but not free, of, of, of feeling better than the incarcerated but being looked down upon by the administration, uh, that sense of, of having a job that has great benefits, but it is a miserable type of existence. Uh, just listening to their conversations, none of them sound happy uh, about their job. And so I think that their resistance to the program stems from that liminal space that they live in of being uh, empowered and disempowered at the same time. What's the social, cultural, political imagination of not having prisons? Talk to me about the truth and justice that you imagine in an um, unincarcerated world, in one that doesn't have this hyper-incarceration that you're talking about. What's, what's your imagination say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think simply I would love for us to cease using our prisons as solutions for poverty, for a growing mental health crisis for our failed public education systems. Uh, I, I wish that we didn't use our prisons as the catch-all for handling the problems we don't have enough imagination to handle. I think an alternative to incarceration and an alternative to prisons is actually is actually investing in not just the social safety net, but investing in the flourishing of people to ensure that everybody who wants a job has a sustainable paying job, uh, to ensure that our schools are, are places of, of sanctuary for learning and creativity and eating uh, and play and not places that look like prison preparatory academies. I think that the move toward ending prisons is to actually build institutions that are sustainable and make human flourishing a possibility. Again, thinking about income protections and expansion, thinking about how we invest in education and in, in anti-racist and in equitable ways. Uh, thinking about actually having a mental health care infrastructure uh, that, that provides free services 
to anybody who needs services. Uh, so, so those are some of the ways that, that, that I think we can make prisons obsolete. I also think that if we need places of isolation or places of excommunication in society, then prisons should be places or these institutions, these places should be spheres where people go as punishment and not places where people go for punishment. Right? I think that the removal from society should be the extent of, of punishment, that you shouldn't go into prisons and be forced into lockdown, be forced to experience violence from the people who are technically paid to protect you, uh, that you should not experience uh, forced hunger in so many contexts, uh, that, that prisons... If, if, you know, and, and that's not the language that we should use in this, in my imagination, but these, these places of, of excommunication where people go as punishment and not where people go for punishment. That, yes, it is clear that there's some people who should not be in public circulation. There's some people who should not be in the public square because they pose a risk to to others or they pose a, a risk to themselves. But getting those people out of society for the most heinous of offenses, I think should be a matter of excommunication or removal from society and not a matter of taking people out of society to further punish them. And, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion that prisons, that these places where we where we send people for removal from the public square should be for the most heinous of offenses. No one should be in prison for nonviolent, low-level drug offenses. The, the majority of people who we are incarcerating for drug offenses are actually people who are dealing with addictions. These are substance dependencies. These are persons who should be under medical care, not languishing in steel boxes, not languishing behind bull, uh, bars where their humanity is being corroded and, 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 and squelched, right? Uh, so I, I dream of a world where we actually have institutions that meet not just meet the basic needs, but institutions that set state-run institutions that set people up to flourish, that set people up to live sustainable and 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 productive lives. Uh, and thinking about those systems that I just named previously, but also if we need places where we excommunicate people. Uh, if we need places where we pull people out of the flow of society, that those should be humane places where people still have a sense of agency, where their humanity is centered, uh, where their dignity is not challenged, where their health is seen as a priority, mental and physical health, places where people go as punishment, not for punishment. Mm -hmm. What do you hope comes out of your work at Bedford Hills and Sing Sing? Uh, one of the, the gifts that, that I hope will continue to come out of this program at Sing Sing and at Bedford Hills is the idea that the least of what we're doing is offering a degree. Uh, I hope what we're doing is helping to build new levels of solidarity uh, across incarceration context. Uh, I hope that we are shaping peer mentors uh, across the incarceration context. But I also believe uh, that our program is preparing and equipping 
faith and thought leaders who will be on the front lines of ending mass incarceration. Uh, that's not how we typically talk about the work of reentry. That's not typically how we talk about uh, the work of coming home and being a social worker. That what our graduates come home to do is actually serve on the front lines of ending uh, the evil of mass incarceration. It is really an honor to hear about this work and to explore this with you a little bit. I am really grateful for your time. Thank you so much for taking this time. And uh, it's been a joy to, to exchange with you. Thank you listeners for joining us today for this episode of In Search Of. If you have ideas, scholars, projects, perspectives that you'd like to hear on this podcast, please let me know. You can email me at insearchof at christiancentury.org. Also go to our website, christiancentury.org slash in search of and sign up for our newsletter, connect with us and find show notes for this episode and for all the episodes of in search of. Please also follow this podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast app to help others find it. This has been a production of the Christian Century, a progressive, thoughtful, independent magazine for today. We'll see you next week. And until then, happy searching.